0: So some of you have gone to churches where uh, the pastors preach vision regularly, and inspiringly, and passionately. And others of you uh, have no experience with church, or your experience with church is you open the text, or use the lectionary, and that's, that's all that you do. And um, I'll let you know I'm a little more like the second in terms of disposition. And one of the reasons is, I got to this church in St. Louis, uh, December of 2002, wasn't yet married, but was engaged, and they didn't have a lead pastor yet. We had been planted by another church, and so we were using their vision statement, which they changed that year. Then they hired a lead pastor, and he changed it again. And then he changed it again. And then he changed it again. And there are only so many times that I think one can be inspired by a vision series. And yet, vision is important because we have a role. This local gathering has a role of glorifying God, of serving neighbors, of us growing up, as human beings and followers of Jesus. Some of our uh, leaders have been a little uh, frustrated is too strong of a word, but they've really wanted me to preach vision. And don't tell anybody I told you, but their names are Don and Stu. And they've been waiting for years for this series where I say, what is our specific role? Because our mission statement is fantastic. But it doesn't tell us how specifically we're going to accomplish that. Our mission statement is to equip people to love God and people, which is great. There's one unique word in there, equip, and that is what every church is supposed to do. But how are we going to do that? And I'll tell you why I waited five years. It wasn't to frustrate those of you that haven't told me you're frustrated, and Don and Stu more specifically. I didn't tell them I was going to do this. And I love it because we end up having good conversations about vision and the importance of vision. But the reason I waited is, I don't know. I do now, but I didn't when I was hired, and I didn't before I was hired, and I didn't the first year. And when the search committee asked me what my vision was for the church, we were down here at our Center for Renewal, I said, I don't know. I don't know the people. I don't know the area. I don't know the history. I don't know the limitations. I don't know the skills and the, and the calling of these specific people yet. Yet. And I, ca- I still can't tell, because all, about all 12 of them are from New England. I cannot tell if they liked or didn't like that answer. It seems like they did in the sense that I was hired, but I'm not fully sure. Mindy, you, you know, Beth, you can tell me later. But it's not about me, which is why I didn't have a vision ready in my interview. It's actually not even about us. It's about the Holy Spirit. What has the Holy Spirit called this gathering of Christ followers to do? And what has the Holy Spirit called us to not do? Another reason uh, that—I'll talk about this a little bit more later, and I talk about it regularly—it might be the least cool thing I preach about, but it's essential, which is limitations. We have 177 members. Therefore, I will not write a vision statement that talks about changing the world, though I'm actually confident that the Holy Spirit is in this very moment changing the world through us because we're His agents of reconciliation and peace and love— and change, but we have limits, but it is important that we have a vision that explains the specificity of our mission in this area, but it's not about us. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing for its own glory. If God exists, then the dominant purpose we have is to glorify him, and then it exists for the good of our neighbor, and then it exists for us. We matter. Our flourishing matters. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the, the reason that we need to develop a vision statement that accompanies, equip people to love God and people is to know our specific role as best we can before God through prayer and conversation. And the elders are going to work out the specific language together. I'm not going to give the language today. I'm going to preach on the ideas and we're going to work it out. I heard someone say once that they've never seen reality precede vision. I have, actually. I wrote this... Uh, sermon weeks ago, and I was looking at my notes this morning, I was like, I actually disagree with one of the most significant quotes in my notes. So I'm still going to say it, and then say, I have. Because sometimes circumstances reveal to us our specific calling. But it is good to have some clarifying language about vision. Though I kind of like it when Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, God hates a visionary dreamer. Just to say that out loud. Because his point is, we can sometimes get so excited about vision that we miss very fundamental reality, which is our role as humans and as a spiritual gathering, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to glorify God and to serve our neighbors and to grow up as followers of Jesus. But, I don't love that quote so much that we're not going to work intentionally on our vision. So another reason um, that I waited until now is I was building something pretty intentionally, not because I had a secret plan that I kept. I had this really small closet next to my bookshelf. It's like this size. It's for vestments that I don't have and I'm not going to start wearing unless one of you has a really compelling argument for it. There's no special plan in there, but what I've been doing over the years is getting to know you and getting to know this area and getting to know our calling and our limitations, and this is how that actually looked. In 2014, Um, I preached a series on why gather, which is the definition of church. Church is a gathering. It's not a building. It's a little unfortunate that the English word reflects a word that makes us think building because if we all go outside, that's the church. And this is still a very beautiful building. You know why there are seven windows up there on each wall? To remind us that one day in seven, as a human being, it is good to worship God together amongst friends. Fourth Commandment, one day in seven. But the first year, we talked about why I gather. The second year, perhaps the most compelling sermon series ever, why being Presbyterian is awesome, and how we run the church. And I heard that laugh from someone that I know loves a sermon on polity. In 2016, did a sermon series on the law, and one of our elders summarized it this way. He actually said, I feel like your vision is take the text seriously and be kind. I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. It's not, it's not the language we're going to use, but yeah, it's pretty right. And so we did a series on the law, not because the law is our God, not because the law can save us, because it can't. The law tells us about who God is. It tells us about our need, and it's a guide for us. But the reason that I used it as a vision series is we take the text seriously. From God, we believe it's inspired. And then last year we did a series on First Corinthians 13: "Love." because we can gather to worship, we can do it Presbyterianly, which is probably the right way. We, we can take the text seriously, but if we can't receive one another doing that as love, if our neighbors can't receive it as love, then we're failing. And on the backs of that, there are things that don't change about church, the gospel. The truth that God loves us and likes us, has found us and forgiven us and called us his own and his love will never quit on us. That doesn't change. Prayer. Prayer guides us and corrects us, helps us to pause in our joys and laments and requests for help and provision. And the scripture does not change. So underneath those sermon series are the things that do not change. Am I getting them in the wrong order? I'm sorry, Eric. This happens to him all the time. Prayer, the gospel, and the Bible. And then more specifically, what I already mentioned, the things that help us develop vision are our location and our limits. You know you have limits, right? I hope that you do. I hope that when you're considering your calling before God, I hope that when you're considering your vocation, I hope that when you're thinking about your day and your week, you remember this. Sometimes I hear people preach, and they make it sound like the gospel of Jesus is be really tired for God because of what he did for you. That is not the good news for two reasons. One, because it's not, and two, because it won't last. Yes, the response to the work of Christ and the pursuing love of the Holy Spirit and the Father Heart of God is activity on our part and emotion, and we have limits. This very moment, we have 177 members. That means we do not have 300 members, but we have more than 50. And so, learning what to do with our relative gifts and skills and affections, and circumstances is important. And it's also in this location. We are a gathering in Simsbury with all of its uh, nobilities and challenges. And if you don't live in Simsbury, you live in the Farmington Valley, which is pretty similar culture. There are differences, but overall pretty similar. Those things inform us. So all that being said, the first move I'm making is to... uh, push us to a more cruciform worship style, a 1030 corporate worship that reflects the fact that that we are people whose lives are forever changed by the cross of Christ, by the life and the teachings, the sacrificial death, and the ascension of Jesus. You know when you hear the quote and it tells you something true because what it says is wrong? You guys, this has happened to you? this just happened to me? I know a lot of you are not on Twitter. I remember it was years ago, before I came to the barn, I read this quote, and I was like, no! And it really helped inform vision. Here's the quote. The sermon is the most important part of a follower of Jesus' week. Nope. No way. But it leads us to a truth. This time together is the most important time for us. When we take the sacrament once a month, uh, that is the most important thing that we do as a human being, because if God exists, then you're first and foremost a worshiper of Him, and He has ordained two sacraments, and that's the one that we do more than once. But your worship matters also. Your prayers of praise and confession and request for help the, it's all important. And the thing that can frustrate me sometimes, and it's my fault, by the way, sometimes you would come to this service and the implication by the way we set it up is that the most important thing are my words. And I don't believe that to be true. And I'm in charge of the planning of the service, though I rely on a whole host of teams that are phenomenal. We need more than a good sermon. I hope they're good. I hope they're helpful. I hope they help you to think. I hope they help you to understand the scriptures better. They help me understand the scriptures better when I'm preparing them. We need more. A couple of years ago, a young man came and visited with us, and he grew up Catholic. And after church, he said, you guys are lazy. And I'm not at all sure he's a follower of Jesus. His point was, I came to church, and I wasn't asked to do anything while I was there, just to enjoy and receive and maybe have my emotions stirred. And there's a reason that we do the service that way, because some of us have grown up in religious cultures where we do lots of things, and it's lifeless. The songs are in a a hymnal, and and our, our hearts don't come alive to that. Something wrong with hymnals, I think they're great. But sometimes when we're using a hymnal, we're not as engaged emotionally. We've learned the prayers and the creeds and we can say them without any emotion or thought. That's a problem. But to teach you a little Latin, abusus non tolit usum. I don't know if I'm saying that the right way. I don't actually know Latin. But abuse doesn't preclude proper use. The fact that we have seen these prayers and creeds and kinds of worship used in a way that seemed lifeless to us doesn't mean they're not important and ordained and even commanded by God, which is why earlier in the service we had a time of confession, which is why in addition to my wife sharing her heart to lead us in worship, we then used a responsive reading from Psalm 19 because it is good for us to formally call ourselves to worship and interact with the text. God has the first word in our lives, therefore he has the first word in our worship services. A friend of mine preached for me a couple of years ago and he said, on its worst days, your later service is kind of a glorified Bible study. And I said, you're right, I gotta work on that. And here's the thing, we're not going to change, I don't wanna change the songs that engage our emotions. I'm so thankful that, our, that we could sing an old hymn and a new hymn, and both of them engage our emotions. That's actually important. If you don't like contemporary Christian music, I'm okay with that, but notice that contemporary Christian music has engaged the emotions in a way that many people couldn't receive through hymns alone, And we need more to flourish. We don't need to do more to get God. We have God. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he'll never leave us or forsake us, and yet we need a little bit more training so that we don't resist the work that has been done on our behalf, so that we can live the kingdom lives that were purchased for us by the work of Christ, so that we can flourish as he described in Matthew chapter 5. We need to not only sing this way and engage with the text through a sermon, we need to practice these practices so that we get used to praising and confessing and asking for help. Yesterday, I took my 12 year old to her uh, art lesson, and right before I left, I asked my 10 year old to walk the dog around the church property, and she said, I'm going to go to the CFR because I'm brave. And I was like, great. And I get back from taking my 12-year-old to art lessons, and there's a Toyota Camry that I don't recognize, and an adult I don't recognize. And in the back seat is my dog and my 10-year-old. And I was on the phone, and I said, I'm going to need to get off the phone. My daughter is in the car with a stranger. And it turned out to be someone that I know and I trust, and I'm still not sure why she said she would get in the car, but I realized like, she didn't know. And my wife, of course, already knew this, that she's not ready to go and walks by herself because she doesn't get the stranger thing. Um, And in that moment, I thought, I need to confess this to my wife. Not necessarily because I sinned against her, partly because she's gonna hear about it from my daughter anyway. Might as well just get it out on the table. And, here, and here's the thing. Confessing people confess. This is why this is good news in the relationship that troubles you. The with God life trains us in how to flourish in relationship with one another. Then we spilled a chocolate milkshake on the nicest rug in the house where I was, ac- I was actually breaking rules this time. It wasn't just a mistake. And they're good rules. They make sense. And So I get to confess again, and I'm like, Lord, could there be not another illustration today about what I need to say tomorrow? Could we just stop at the chocolate shake? It's sort of the cat's fault, but I'm the one that, I'm the human. (laughs) In the relation. (laughs) Shouldn't have let the shake be in there. Liturgy means the work of the people. Did you know that? Everything we do on a Sunday morning is liturgical. There's no such thing as a non-liturgical service. But there is such a thing as a careless liturgy. Quoting one of our elders as we were talking about this. And a careless liturgy could be letting the words be rote and non-emotional. Another another kind of careless liturgy would be to require nothing of you in this moment. And we're not requiring something of you because we earn the love of God. You have the love of God because of the work of Christ. But we have work to do to train ourselves in grace. In Titus chapter two, Paul says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Grace saves us into eternal life and internal peace with God immediately, and it trains us. And during our worship service, we need to be a little more active and a little more deliberate about our movements of training. So the vision is of a cruciform worship because we are a cruciform people. God that we worship exists and has made himself known through Jesus. He exists in three persons. Our worship needs to be Trinitarian and cruciform where we learn to praise and lament and petition and confess. If you wonder where I get that uh, structure, it's from the Lord's Prayer. It not only guides us in our prayer closets, it guides us on Sunday mornings. So here's here's a a softball prayer application. Take your bulletin home, and when you're not sure how to spend time with the Lord, use it as a guide. Not because it's a perfect guide. There are a lot of good guides. But we print one, and you're welcome to take it home for use on your Mondays and Thursdays and Tuesdays and Fridays and Wednesdays because we are indeed a cruciform people and we need to lean into that for our flourishing. And something perhaps specific to me in terms of calling but I think is the call of every gathering of Christ's followers to learn to do cruciform worship in all seasons. And that's hard. It's hard to be sad and to do sad amongst friends that we don't feel fully comfortable with because there's too many of them. You know, if we get too close to one another, we bonk heads, right? Which is kind of what it feels like to do church for more than a couple of months. We get to learn to do this, to do cruciform worship with our words, with our standing up and sitting down, with our singing, with our prayers in every season. We need practices in worship for our flourishing that include learning to be sad together. A couple of years ago, we had a season of lament, and it was very interesting because we dropped in attendance, about 25%, because we're uncomfortable being sad. But this life will include suffering. You must know that. The scriptures are profoundly clear about it. And so one of the skills that we must develop is learning to lament together. Jesus' prayer book, the longest book in your Bible, the most common form of song, be it individual or corporate, is lament. And for you as an individual, it is wise to be sad about sad things. And for us as a group, we will occasionally lament together and it will make many of us uncomfortable. And that's how we learn to flourish as followers of Jesus. For some of us, it will feel overwhelming to lament, and yet it is good and wise to be sad about sad things. I'm quoting uh, my former lead pastor, Zach Eswine. He wrote that in a book about depression. Charles Spurgeon, if you know this famous 19th century pastor, struggled mightily with depression, partly through circumstance and partly through his internal chemistry. The way he wrestles through the gospel with that is profound. What I think happened a couple of years ago when we lamented together is we actually shrank and we grew at the same time as a gathering. We shrank in numbers because being sad together is is uncomfortable, but we grew internally because we must learn to to praise and to lament and to ask for help and to confess in every season of our lives because you will go through seasons of orientation where you might forget to pray because everything's fine. You're going to go through seasons of disorientation where it is hard to hear or see or believe in God. Psalm 88 closes with this line, darkness is my closest friend. You think the Bible's all praisey? The scriptures are far more comfortable than most of us pouring out all of their praise and all of their whining and all of their lament and all of their cursing to God, knowing he takes it seriously. One of my very favorite verses in the Bible is in Psalm 30. David, uh, I believe, became physically ill, so he's praising the Lord, and then he's starting to ask for help, and then he gets sarcastic. He says, will the dust praise you in Psalm 30? And I love it, because he's being so honest. I hope that you pray that way. It's why so far every year that I've been here, including uh, a series coming up, we're gonna go with the Psalms for a couple of weeks to remind us to praise when we're in the sun, metaphorically, when our life is oriented easily and we understand it and we're comfortable and are sleeping well at night. But also we know how to whine and complain and lament in our seasons of disorientation. And perhaps most importantly, we know what to do when the Lord reorients us to himself after a challenging season. Perhaps that's the most gospel move within the psalms or the psalms of reorientation. Psalm 30 that has the sarcastic verse also ends with something that perhaps you're more familiar with. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy because that is what God does in our hearts and minds and life. He redeems us and calls us his own. He heals our pasts, gives us strength for the today, and hope for the future. Psalm, I would call that a psalm of reorientation. So the vision is of a cruciform worship in all seasons which trains us in grace, trains us in the flourishing with God life, trains us to live the lives of life that Christ purchased on the cross. And so what you'll see is a little more uh, deliberate back and forth Structure in this worship service. One of my very good friends who's a professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis who wrote his dissertation on uh, Paul's use of the words life and death in Galatians, and this is where I don't talk to you about intertestamental literature because you don't care. He came to church here and when he comes to church he likes to go to the 9 o'clock service because it's the back and forth liturgy. It's a cruciform liturgy and because they believe it. Dave believes it's true and he believes it's good news and you can hear it in the old language and the repeated confessions and prayers, you can still hear the passion and you can when Rick leads it also and I hope when I lead it. And what he said to me after the service was, who's that guy? I said, his name's Dave and he's like, he is great. And the reason is he, he's great is he's leading in these old ways that for some of us feel lifeless and he infuses them with life because he believes it and because it's true, and because it's good news. And so the, the what do we do with this vision? Show up. I believe that part of the reason that the culture of this particular worship service is not as on time, and I, this, this is not shaming any of you. I'd be late if I didn't live here, literally. But I believe the reason that this service is not as on time as that service is because I don't require things of you uh, in terms of activity during the service. And so it's actually not you, it's me. Next time your spouse complains be like it's Matt's fault. Did you not hear the sermon? He totally took the blame. But next year I think we will have changed that culture and I don't I don't I don't actually care very much about us being here on time except that the work we have to do together as people training our own hearts and minds is worth it. This is how we live the kingdom life Jesus described. This is how we learn to flourish even as we're still in the presence of sin and death until Jesus returns. This is how we live the lives of life He has purchased for us. Training. When we only sing four songs and then, my, and then I preach, and I'm, you know, preaching matters. I dedicate about 20% of my week to it. I believe it's one of the most important, well, anyway. Anyway. I believe, in, I believe in preaching, but when we only sing four songs and then there's a sermon, it's like you're training for something physical, and you go to the gym, and they play this inspiring music, and you hear a talk about training, and you leave. You're like, why did I wear my, you know, my under armor? Why did I tie my shoes if we were just gonna hear? And they say at the end, come back again next week, and we're gonna do the same thing. How many of you have ever trained for a marathon? What if you were training with a partner and they played music from Rocky, some survivor to get you running, and they gave you a pep talk, but you didn't go running? I gotta be honest, I love those stickers that say 0.0, but really, really good for you. (laughs) I think think those are funny because I've never run further than five miles in my life. How about, uh, how many of you have trained for a triathlon? What if... In training for a triathlon, because that's challenging, really physically challenging. And you show up, and your training partner's there, and they've run a triathlon. And they have the breathable shirt. And they look in shape, and you're excited. You're like, maybe I could be in shape, too. And the music is awesome. And you hear very compelling words, but you don't do any work. And I come back next week, and you're like, is this going to work? And the reason that I like that illustration, which I borrowed from a book called The Eternal Current by Aaron Nequist that I'm reading, and one of our elders is reading with me to help us think about this in the 9 o'clock service and the 10.30 service, the reason I say that is the with God life while free because Jesus did all the work is still a lot like a marathon in terms of loving the neighbors that God has given you in terms of learning and then living out your very specific calling because all of you have a calling both in this gathering and in your own life and in your family and it will feel at times very much like a marathon. Can't believe I didn't get any amens. Do you not have the brothers and sisters that I have that are so challenging to love? That's okay. None of them listen to the sermons. Don't worry about laughing. They won't be mad at you. Living the with God life Choosing to love both the neighbors we find ourselves in a relationship with and our enemies requires training. It's very challenging. Although the entire, all of the work with merit has been done by Christ, you and I get to say words and be silent with them. We have work out there that is challenging because the world is against us. And so we need to train a little bit more deliberately on Sunday mornings. That we might flourish, that our neighbors might know the love of Christ, that God might be glorified. One of the most powerful parts of our evangelism is authentic worship. And it was such a blessing to be amongst you this morning and to hear your voices rise. And I was singing too, but I sing low because I'm not a very good singer. And to hear your voices rise... Was wonderful, and to those that are considering the with God life, considering following Jesus, part of your evangelism is the authentic worship. So, what's the application? Show up, give, because this organization needs resources to do the work that is that we're called to. Get here on time, and and you know that's my fault. But next year, you know, over this year and next year, start getting here on time because we have work to do. Take your bulletin home. Take notes on more than just the sermon. Though you should, of course, write down all the compelling things that I say. But take notes during the prayers and the call to worship. And when you realize that that song is filling your heart with joy, write it down and then put it on your Spotify or Pandora or far be it from us to actually buy a CD. Are CDs still sold? But take notes on the singing. Because not only is it good to sing to our hearts what we believe, it's good to sing it on Mondays and Tuesdays also. And our worship leaders, our music leaders, are mentoring you in that in the same way that Kim is mentoring us in prayer and I'm mentoring us in confession because we are women and men who worship a God who loves us and likes us who found us right as we are and pursued us and called us to himself and there is a flourishing life for us that leans into the way he described praise and confession and lament and request for help. We're going to do it here and we're going to do it in our homes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for commanding that we praise you. Thank you for the book of Psalms and the spiritual songs and the hymns that you have given us. Thank you for your consistent encouragement that we request help from you. Lord, let it be True in our hearts and minds that indeed when we remember what you've done, we cannot help but worship you in all seasons. Amen.